Today we're going to be starting a new book of the Bible, Song of Songs. Um, just out of interest, how many people here have in church... Oh, I need to. Thank you, brother. How many of you have, in sitting in church, heard a pastor preach all the way through Song of Songs? No. I said sitting in church while you were there. There you go. I know a lot of people you can search and you can actually find some uh, sermon series on uh, sermon audio that go through Song of Solomons. But uh, to my, uh, in my experience, this is the most neglected book in the Bible, less preached on even than Ecclesiastes. And that's a shame, uh, as we'll see. Now, I do want to give you a tip. Um, first off, uh, in finding Song of Solomon, uh, it, it is actually on one... Uh, 1,046 in your Bible. It's the last time I'm going to actually give you the number. But the, uh, uh, the tip is, and many of you already know this, that the Old Testament is arranged topically. So the historical books are together. The wisdom literature, that is Psalms and Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, they're all together. So uh, if you let your Bible fall open naturally, which book will it generally fall to? Psalms, the middle of the, uh, the Bible. So if you just move right of Psalms, you'll find your way through Ecclesiastes and then Song of Solomon. If you reach the major prophets, that is Isaiah, Jeremiah, Daniel, and so on, you've gone too far and so on. Uh, but that's how you find Song of Solomon. Uh, eventually, we'll go through the minor prophets. I'll give you some tips on how to find the minor prophets. That's, that's the real difficult one. Find Amos. <laughs> you know, anyway, moving on. But um, I am excited to begin this work. I, will, I would be lying, though, if I did not say I was also a little trepidatious uh, to begin this work. Uh, it is a, a book unlike any of the other books, uh, well, with the exception of Psalms, perhaps, that I've ever preached through. But let us, uh, before we go to the Word of God, let's go to the God who gave us this Word, and let's ask for his help. Sovereign Lord, as today we turn our attention to the Song of Solomon, the Song of Songs, I pray, Lord, that you would be our teacher that you would illuminate us inwardly and help us to understand. I confess, Lord, that it would be useless for me to try to open up and exposit this word unless I have your Spirit's help. I cannot reach hearts, Lord. Only you can do that. I may be able to reach ears, but, Lord, only you will be able to change hearts through this, to penetrate, O oh Lord, and to cause conviction and change. And, O oh Lord, I pray that as we go through this book, there would be a springing up, a longing for a greater knowledge of our Savior, Jesus Christ, that we would see him typified in this book and that we would desire to have the kind of relationship with him that we see modeled for us in the pages of the Song of Songs. I pray also, O oh Lord, that you would keep us attentive. I know that those who are more doctrinally minded are going to have difficulty with such uh, long sweeping poetry, but uh, I pray, Lord, that you would nonetheless help us to see the great value in this book. And I pray, Lord, that you would help me to understand how to explain it to your people, remembering always they are your little lambs. Let me say nothing that is not in keeping with your intent. And I pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Amen. Reading simply verse 1 of the Song of Songs. The Song of Songs, which is Solomon's. Well, uh, as I said, this is one of the most neglected books of the Bible. And for an Englishman to be going through it, it is even more difficult because, of course, it discusses sex, marriage, human anatomy, and it just doesn't stop. It keeps going back and going through those themes and dipping into them uh, more and more greatly. Um, I, I do normally, before I begin a sermon series, one of the things that I'll do is I'll go through and I'll listen to some typical sermons by uh, other preachers who've gone through that, see the way that they divide it up, their 
their take and, and so on. Uh, and <laughs> I, heard some, I heard some excellent, uh, excellent sermons. One of the things that struck me, though, is uh, those who take an analogical approach, sometimes you will get, and they'll, they'll both be identifying as Reformed preachers, and one will take uh, one view of a passage, and then the other person will come up with something entirely different. Um, so that uh, it wasn't as helpful to go through them, but there were some, there were some funny parts and some interesting uh, things that I took away from it. One Baptist preacher, uh, starting out on the book, uh, put it, he said, Now I understand that there are some of you here who have small children, and you might be just a little hesitant about a sermon series on this book, and you're thinking, why this book has more breasts, thighs, and legs than a KFC in it. So, uh, and, and truly, it, it, it does. Um, I wasn't sure I was going to share that, but I decided I would go ahead with it. But uh, obviously, that is something in the book. There's a lot of human anatomy. Uh, the ancient rabbis felt that a young man shouldn't study this book until he was at least 30 years of age, lest he become too inflamed by the uh, verbiage in here. Uh, so if you're less than 30, buckle your seatbelts and stay under control, please. Um, before we talk about the main narrative of this book and the approach to it, Let's talk about uh, things like the title, the genre, the author, the setting, and so on. First, the genre, uh, I sort of gave it away when I told you what portion of the Bible it was part of. It's wisdom literature. Uh, but at the same time, it is also poetry. This is not prose like uh, Proverbs. This is poetry, which makes it a lot like the Psalms. Uh, and what makes it even more like the Psalms is that it's set in the form of a song. Okay, this is really designed to be sung, believe it or not. Uh, in fact, it's not just a song. In the Hebrew, it's shir ha shirim, which means song of songs. And that is a, whenever you see that, uh, that repetition like that, it's a superlative. Uh, this is the Hebrew way of saying it's, it's the greatest. So, for instance, the holiest part of the temple. What was the holiest part of the temple called? The holy of holies. You don't get more holy than this. Uh, Jesus, he's not just the king, he's the king of kings, right? And the Lord of lords. There's no one greater than him. So this is the superlative. What the Bible is saying about this is it's the song of songs. You don't get a better song, certainly not a better love song, than the song of songs. That should mean for us, at the very least, this is a book we need to look at. It's something that we cannot simply dismiss. We should not be dismissing any book of the Bible, but especially one that says that, I mean, there is no psalm that says it's the psalm of psalms, but this says it's the song of songs. Now, in terms of authorship, uh, as it says it's the shir, chasherim, uh, and then it says asher le shlomo, which means which is Solomon's, okay? So song of songs, which is Solomon's. Uh, this is called in Hebrew the Lamed of Authorship. They're telling you who wrote the book. And they tell you Solomon wrote the book. The, tell, the title tells us straight away that King Solomon is the author. His name also occurs five times in the book. And it would seem to identify him as the main character, the beloved of the Shulamite, the maiden in the story. Uh, three times we see him mentioned in that way. He is, therefore, the king in question when we're talking about that. Now, uh, that he is identified as the author of the book, that shouldn't surprise us. You remember Solomon asked the Lord for wisdom, 
And uh, the Lord granted that request, and as a result, Solomon wrote plenty of wisdom literature. He wrote plenty of poems and songs. Let's go back to 1 Kings, for instance, where we've been spending a lot of time of late, and I want to take us back to 1 Kings in chapter 4, and then verse 30. And there we read this. I'm going to actually start with verse 29. And God gave Solomon wisdom and exceedingly great understanding and largeness of heart like the sand on the seashore. Thus Solomon's wisdom excelled the wisdom of all the men of the east and all the wisdom of Egypt. For he was wiser than all men, than Ethan, the Ezraite, than Heman, Chalcol, and Darda, the sons of Mahal. And his fame was in all the surrounding nations. He spoke 3,000 proverbs, and his songs were 1,005. Also, he spoke of trees from the cedar tree of Lebanon, even to the hyssop, the springs out of the wall. He spoke also of animals, of birds, of creeping things, and of fish. And men of all nations, from all the kings of the earth, who had heard of his wisdom, came to hear the wisdom of Solomon. Solomon was an authority in all things. He had been given great wisdom. And we'll hear a lot about myrrh and frankincense and spices and vineyards and so on. So his, uh, um, his botanical knowledge is displayed also within this book as well. Uh, and I simply, I'll put it this way, I know that there are modern authors who do not believe the description in this book. They don't believe that it was written by Solomon. They'll come up with, um, and they'll produce arguments about some of the words that are used, and they'll say, oh no, that's a later borrowed word from uh, Persia. It can't be part of this book. I, I don't happen to believe that's the truth. I do believe that this book was written by Solomon, that he was actually uh, the author of that book. But having said that, that creates other problems, doesn't it? If the Solomon uh, of history is the, uh, that is the King Solomon of history, is the author of this book, um, he was hardly the ideal husband himself, was he? Uh, he collected 700 wives and 300 concubines. So uh, if ever a king seemed to have more interest in lust than love, it was Solomon. Uh, Liam Gallagher, as he was preparing to preach through this series, he had another anecdote. He was going in, and his wife uh, was shocked to hear that he was going to uh, preach on Song of Solomon, and Solomon is the author. And she said, oh, he was a dirty old man. And uh, sadly, um, in his final years, that, that is sort of true, unfortunately. His later years were filled with building temples to false gods of all these women that he had, um, he had multiplied from the nations. So the question would be, then, when do the events that are spoken of here occur? When did he, if he is the author, when did he write these things? Uh, his first wife, some, some people would say, well, he's speaking of his first great love. That's what's going on here. But his first wife was not a Shulamite. That is, a woman from the town of Shulam or Shunem. His first wife was Pharaoh's daughter, certainly not somebody who would have kept vineyards in her youth. She was a princess. Uh, and even if it was an actual account of his love for his first or perhaps a second or third wife, what does it say that he quickly got over his singular passion and kept adding new wives and new concubines? That would seem to, uh, to drive down the, uh, the veracity of the, the statements of love that occur early on in the work. Now, some commentators explain uh, no, this is what we're reading when we read Song of Solomon. We are reading the testimony of an older, repentant Solomon. 
who after years of philandering realized his folly and he was able to write an uh, idealized account. This is what my marriage and your marriage should have looked like. That's what they they believe. For instance, Ian Duguid uh, points out, sometimes those who know most about failure are the best teachers and guides to others. Who better to teach us about faithful perseverance under pressure than Peter, who once denied his master? Who better to instruct us about salvation by grace alone than Paul, the former Pharisee of the Pharisees? If Solomon was indeed the author of the song, who better to show us what true love looks like in marriage than a man whose own life was a walking marital disaster? And there is some merit to that. But I, I, I tend to take the view, and here I'm raising my hand and, and saying to you clearly, this is not dogma necessary to be believed by all the faithful. This is just my opinion. Um, I believe that Solomon wrote this early in his reign when it was said of him in 1 Kings 3.3, and Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of his father David, except that he sacrificed and burned incense at the high places. And before it was said of him in 1 Kings 11.1, but King Solomon loved many foreign women as well as the daughter of Pharaoh, women of the Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, and Hittites from the nations of whom the Lord had said to the children of Israel, you shall not intermarry with them, nor they with you. Surely they will turn away your hearts uh, after their gods. Solomon clung to these in love, and he had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. So I believe that he wrote this early in his reign in Israel. I also believe this because there's an old proverb that says, and I find it to be very true. This is not a biblical proverb, but there are a lot of proverbs that tend to match the nature of mankind. It says this, young men write poetry, middle-aged old men write proverbs, and old men write about vanity. Um, And so you can actually, following that proverb, you can map out Solomon's writing career. So, for instance, in his youth, he writes the Song of Songs when he's in his poetry uh, writing phase. In his middle age, he writes the Proverbs. And then, Vanity of Vanities, what's the book he writes in his old age as he's looking back? Ecclesiastes, that's right. So, what do I believe about the Song of Solomon? I believe this is Solomon writing of an idealized Uh, that is uh, an idealized love that is far more than a love story about one of his relationships. I believe he's talking about the ideal of love, not just between, and I'll speak about this later, not just between man and wife, but between the believer and the Lord. And the critical question, of course, is uh, in, in interpretation is whether this book is about love and marriage or it is, is it a book about the believer's relationship to Christ? Those are the two places where people diverge. Um, and historically, Reformed in, uh, interpretation has always favored the latter approach, that this is a book about the believer's relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ. But uh, of late, there has been a massive shift in interpretation towards the former, that this is a book about love and marriage. And you can now find commentaries where the idea... Uh, that it is about uh, believers and their love to Christ, uh, where it's almost dismissed. In fact, uh, one modern, modern commentary that was written by, I, I hesitate to call him a Reformed pastor, but a Reformed-ish pastor uh, that I would not recommend, uh, basically turned the book into a sex manual for Christian married couples. I, I'm, not, I'm not kidding. Um, I, I will tell you which book that is if you are in, insanely curious after the sermon, but uh, it, as I said, I don't recommend it. Do not go out and buy it. So, uh, which is it then? Is it uh, a book about love and marriage, or is it a book about the believer's relationship to, to both, uh, to Christ? And there I gave it away. It, it's both. 
It is both. Um, because you see, marriage is a creation ordinance. It's a gift. It's the place where the gift of sex is supposed to occur. It's the way society is built up. And it's the closest relationship that people can have in this life. But it is also intended by God from the very beginning to be a metaphor, a picture that teaches us about the closest of all relationships, which is, of course, the relationship of the believer to their Lord, the believer to Christ. And you see the way that that is uh, mingled throughout the Bible. Again and again in the Old Testament, did not God speak of himself as the husband of Israel? And he said, I married you to myself. One of the most um, uh, chilling portions of the entire Old Testament is where he gives his people a certificate of divorce. He says, you are lo ami, no longer my people. He casts them off, but then he brings them back to himself. We see that beautifully spelled out, of course, in the story of Hosea and how he is called upon to marry Gomer, a prostitute. And there the Lord is saying to his people, I'm the husband, she's the, uh, you are the wife, you're Gomer. Uh, that kind of interpretive uh, grid, that metaphor, goes on and on throughout the Old Testament. But you see it in the New Testament as well. In Ephesians chapter 5, and if you'll turn in your Bibles to this, this is uh, perhaps the strongest place where this comes out in uh, the New Testament. But the idea of the Lord Jesus as the husband of his people, we'll see that in other books as well, particularly in Revelation. Uh, the great thing that we are headed towards, the thing that we long for, the thing that is uh, pointed to in the Lord's Supper when we partake of that is, of course, the wedding supper of the Lamb. The people of God are spoken of by Jesus as the, uh, as the maidens waiting for the bridegroom. He called himself the bridegroom. You can't fast while the bridegroom is with you. Jesus himself called himself the husband of the church. Okay, the church is the wife, Jesus is the husband. So in Ephesians 5.22, we read this, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is the head of the church, and he is the savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as the Lord does the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let each one of you in particular so love his own wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So you see there, it starts out, it's very straightforward. Wives, respect your husbands. Husbands, love your wives. And then we immediately, what is the, what's the ideal that the husband should be following? What's the ideal that the wife should be following? Well, the ideal that the, the husband should be following and how to love his wife is the way that Christ loved the church. And how should the wife respect her husband in the way that the church is called upon to respect Christ? Marriage, therefore, we look in, for advice on how to have the good marriage here on earth to the 
relationship between Christ and the church in its ideal form. And in the same way also, when we want to understand the the depth of our relationship, to understand our relationship to Christ better, the communion that we have to him, we use the metaphor of marriage. It goes in both directions. And that's mingled, as I said, throughout the Bible. Um, And also, we remember that when Christ, you remember when he rose from the dead, And he met those two disciples who were on their way to Emmaus. One of the things that he did was he opened their minds to understand the scripture. And he showed them how all of the books of the Bible spoke of him. That was something that Christ did with his disciples. He opened up the Old Testament and he said, every single book in the Old Testament speaks of me. So it can't be that Song of Solomon is simply a marriage manual. It has to speak of Christ. And we see that in him as the idealized king. So Solomon in this book is the ideal. It's not the merely mortal Solomon who lived here. He's the great king uh, who points us to the king of kings. And you see that not just in the song, but also in Psalm 45, which is sort of, in some ways, Psalm 45 is like the cliff notes for Song of Songs. So go ahead and turn, if you would, to Psalm 45. And here we see the marriage of the king. And the king here is, is clearly, it's supposed to be Solomon once again, even though uh, it's written by one of the sons of Korah. But it's a love song, but it clearly speaks of the believer's relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ. My heart is overflowing with a good theme. I recite my composition concerning the king. My tongue is the pen of a ready writer. You are fairer than the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. Gird your sword upon your thigh, O mighty one, with your glory and your majesty. And in your majesty, ride prosperously because of truth, humility, and righteousness. And your right hand shall teach you awesome things. Your arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies. The peoples fall under you. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. Your love, you love righteousness and hate wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. All your garments are scented with myrrh and aloes and cassia out of the ivory palaces by which they have made you glad. King's daughters are among your honorable women. At your right hand stands the queen in gold from Ophir. Listen, O daughter, consider and incline your ear. Forget your own people also and your father's house, so the king will greatly desire your beauty because he is your Lord. Worship him. And the daughter of Tyre will come with a gift. The rich among the people will seek your favor. The royal daughter is all glorious within the palace. Her clothing is woven with gold. She shall be brought to the king in robes of many colors. The virgins, her companions who follow her, shall be brought to you. With gladness and rejoicing they shall be brought. They shall enter the king's palace. Instead of your fathers shall be your sons whom you shall make princes in all the earth. I will make your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore, the people shall praise you forever and ever. And you notice how in Psalm 45, you move back and forth from the king to God. And you see, obviously, this idealized queen, although she is taken from, uh, from the earth and, and she's supposed to forget her peoples. And that would seem to lead us towards thinking, well, maybe this is speaking of, uh, of the princess of Egypt who was married to Solomon initially. And yet it must be more than that. It must be more. Um, again and again, we see there the, the, the virgin, the, uh, the daughter, the one who is being wed to the king, representing the Lord's people, the ecclesia, the church. And that's a, a theme that's going to come out from within the Song of Songs as well. So um, it's clear that 
Uh, as Ian Duguid puts it, it is clear from the rest of Scripture that the greatest song about love is likely not merely to speak of human love, but also to celebrate and teach us something about the divine love that God has for his people. As the Apostle John reminds us, the greatest love in this world is not the love that humans have for one another, nor even our love for God, but rather his love for us. And I love what G.I. Williamson wrote uh, about uh, this and its importance to us in teaching us not just about marriages, but about our love to Christ and what he does for us and how this should, once we've, we've conceived of the way it points us to the ideal marriage, how that should affect us. He writes this. He says, I've seen a lot of marriages, good, bad, and indifferent, but I've never seen any that are perfect. But that's our model. And that really is, and you'll see it as we go through this book, the model that comes to us through this great poem written by Solomon about his love for Shulamite maiden and her love for him. And you can't learn it anywhere else but the Bible. You know, beloved in the Lord, there is no such thing among sinful men as the perfect or ideal marriage. It doesn't exist, but there is such a thing in God's holy word. It is the marriage of Christ and the church as it was imaged in this great idealization of Solomon and the Shulamite maiden. Whether that actually happened in his early life or was a reminiscence of his old age doesn't matter. It images the great love of Christ for the church and what a wonderful thing it is to see what the image can do in the lives of people. And there's an important point to be made about this as well. If the Song of Solomon was simply a marriage manual, if it was simply about love uh, here on earth, it would be rather a bitter book to those who never get married, coming to it, uh, to those who were uh, eunuchs or those who desired marriage but never found it, they would read and be aggrieved. This is what I never had, they might say. But for those of you who are in Christ and read this book aright, you see your relationship to the betrothed, as the betrothed rather to the king. You see your own privileges. You see that you have a relationship that's been established by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ that is stronger even than any human relationship. It is a book that teaches us first and foremost about the relationship that the believer has to the one who has wedded them to him himself, the bridegroom, that is the Lord Jesus Christ. And therefore, it's applicable to every single Christian, no matter where you are. You might be a widow, you might never have married, you might uh, be thinking, I'll never marry, and then you will, of course, if you think that. But regardless of where you are in life, this book is applicable to you. There is something to be taken out of it. And therefore, I pray that you'll have open ears and open eyes as you uh, look into it and you see these things. But more than anything else, I hope you'll see the beauty of Christ. And if you are a doctrinal person, I know you're going to be at some points irritated by all of the poetic language and the love, 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 love stuff that comes up again and again and again. But I hope your heart will be melted by it. And you will see that there is a a good purpose for love poetry, even in the lives of the old and crusty people or Englishmen like myself. Let us now go before the Lord. God, our Father, we do thank you that you've given us this book. As a guide, not only as a model to the ideal marriage, the way that uh, it should be, the way our our hearts should be inflamed with love uh, for our mate. But I pray, Lord, that you would also help us to see the loveliness of Christ that it would cause us to desire to know him more deeply, that we would understand the depth of his love to us. His love was first. We love him because he first loved us. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us, therefore, to have a a firmer relationship to him and that we would love this book, for it is the Song of Songs. And we pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen.